Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. You have your Bibles, if you would. Turn to Acts chapter 2. As we continue looking at Christ's church, the dearest place on earth. We're going to cover in this second part what we couldn't cover in the first part last week as we looked at the basic attributes of the church. This will be part two, and you will be thankful after I cover part two that I didn't try to put part two and part one together, though I was going to attempt it. You are going to see that there is so much here that we have to spend some time looking at. But before we get into today's portion of this, this second part of the basic attributes of the church, let me remind you of what we talked about last week. And let me remind you why we're talking about these things. Why are we going into a series on the church? Why are we diving off into ecclesiology, the study of Christ's church? It's important that we understand that. Because it's important that we understand as a church where we have come from and why we have come from where we have come from. We have come from the dust where there was nothing and God has raised up a vibrant and healthy, productive, gospel-centered, gospel-preaching, Bible-driven, word-proclaiming body of believers. And in that, He is working in our midst. He is changing lives. He is saving souls. He is putting families back together. Oh, the testimony after testimony of those who were on the brink of divorce. Their marriage was all but over. They heard the preaching of the Word of God or the teaching of the Word of God in one of their discipleship groups or one of their reach groups, and, and now they give testimony of how God has restored that relationship back to health. The stories that we have of family members who... We're holding grudges and bitter against one another who have now learned to forgive and, and to move on and to forgive as the Lord has forgiven. It, it all comes because God is doing a great work. We're going to see in just a moment. I use that term loosely, several moments. We're going to see those who have recently come to faith in Jesus Christ publicly profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior through their baptism. And we get to be a part of that and, 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 and see that when I say that, it is a privilege. We get to be a part of that. The first church that I pastored upon my arrival at that church, they had not baptized a single soul in 10 plus years. The baptistry was metal and it was all but rusted out in the bottom because they had not used it. They had no need to take care of it. And I learned there in that pastorate of a God who is mighty to save. We're going to talk a lot about him today. And I saw uh, things restored and revived under the power of God. But here at this fellowship, as we think of the sweetness of this place, the dearest place on earth to me. Why? Because this is the church, the local church that I belong to and that you belong to. This is our small glimpse of heaven on earth. We joined together this morning in singing praise to, the, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we will do that together with our brothers and sisters in Christ for all eternity. Joining with the angels and the heavenly hosts and singing praise and adoration to our God. 
and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is important that we talk about his church, the importance of his church. It's not just something that we do or someplace that we go. This is the active and living body of Christ where he works and he moves weekly, daily even. I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of that, but I'm also aware of the fact that there is a real enemy who wants to destroy everything that God is doing. And he will make every attempt to do so, though he will never succeed in the big picture. Because Christ said nothing is going to prevail against his church. Oh, he has succeeded oftentimes in churches forgetting who they really are and what they're really supposed to be. Uh, He will distract them and not let them return to where we are today in Acts chapter 2. And you can turn there in your Bibles now if you would. Acts chapter 2. We're going to go all the way back to the early church as we did last week. And last week we began and we looked at verses 42 and part of 43. We saw that the church, the true church, will have some basic attributes. We're going to continue that today. We're going to finish that out. But we saw last week that it will be a group of devoted believers. Stop thinking that this individual on the island can have church all by himself, out on his boat on a Sunday morning when everybody else is assembling together. That's not the church. That's an individual trying to pretend like he's the church and trying to justify his actions. He would rather be fishing than joining together with the body of Christ as the Word of God commands us when it says to forsake not the assembly of yourselves together. I know that I'm preaching to the choir this morning because you have assembled together. But many of you have not always found your place in the assembly. You were outside of the assembly or you were perhaps a believer, but you were wayward because you were not joining together with other believers to celebrate Christ. Isn't there something about joining together with other believers to celebrate Christ from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation? Knowing that our common bond the atoning work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. The true church will be a group of devoted believers. They will be marked by this, joining together. Joining together under the banner of Christ. We saw also last week that a true church will be devoted to biblical truth. That we will do everything that we can to teach you the word of God. To make sure that you have the opportunity to learn the Word of God. We will give you the assurance that right now, your children are down the hall as we speak. They are learning biblical and doctrinal truths that will carry them their entire lifetime on a level that they can begin to understand. Right now, they're not down in our preschool and in our children's ministry getting cookies and Kool-Aid and a sweet little story receiving the truth of the Word of God, and you can rest assured of that. We have people who work tirelessly to make sure that this happens. You can know this, that next door in, in Rich right now, as they are traveling through the Old Testament verse by verse and section by section, they are learning the same principles that your children are learning in their departments this morning so that dad can talk to son and daughter about the truths that they learned together today on this Lord's Day. We know that a group of devoted believers will be devoted, the true church, to biblical truth. But also to fellowship and communion, fellowshipping with one another, getting together, doing life together, loving one another, and communing with Christ while we do this. We know the Lord's Supper, as we talked about last week, gave us that picture of that. 
We commune with the Father through the Son because of the, the body of Christ that was broken and the, and the blood that was shed. Every time that we partake of the Lord's Supper in, in observing the communion, we know this, when we partake of that, it is a picture for us to remember what Christ has done for us and the fellowship that we now are included in because of the atoning work of Christ. So a church will bear that mark, a true church, but also they will be a people of prayer, as we discussed in part one. They're going to be people who bend their knees and humble their hearts and who seek God. I love to be a part of a church that every week people come and they pray for lost people. They take these names out of this basket that sits here just below my feet. And they pray specifically by name. Many of you have been led in the past, prompted by the Spirit, yet you've been in disobedience. Come and pray and seek out the Lord to save these loved ones and these friends that are here. Why do we pray for them? Because we are depending upon a sovereign God. That is why we pray. I'm thankful for those in the church who are devoted to pray for me, their pastor, for the leadership of this church, the elders, the staff oversee the day-to-day ministries that go on here. I'm thankful for your prayers. They are not unnoticed. They are felt every single day when the Lord encourages me as you petition Him on my behalf and He lifts my head as He's been so faithful in doing, encouraging me. Thank you for being obedient to that. And then we saw lastly last week, and, and I know this is a recap, but many of you weren't here, so you get the quick version. And all the others who were here last week go, man, couldn't you have just given it to us that quick? Reverence for God is the fifth thing that we looked at last week. The church will be a God-fearing place. But we have a holy reverence for God. When we come in here, we don't come in here with some flippant, almost entitled attitude. We come together in humility. We come together broken, broken people, seeking only our God who can make us whole and complete in Christ. Fearing Him with that healthy fear and reverence that a true person of God will possess and that a true church will possess. And so these were God-fearing people. They stood in awe of what they saw. Last week we we had the the believers who had been saved through the process of Key Life Fellowship stand. And, And I pray that you were awed by it. I spent most of the afternoon fighting back tears as I reflected things in my mind and just the sight of the multitude who stood to their feet giving God glory and honor and praise for the fact that He has saved them from their sin. What a miracle. We should be in awe of that in just a while when we have baptism. These new young babes in Christ profess Christ. We ought to be in awe that He still saves the sinner. We ought to be thankful that we get to see it. As I've already told you, many churches or so-called churches never Never feel the baptistry. I'm so thankful that we feel the baptistry on a regular basis and then sometimes just because people want to be obedient and and they'll say, I need to be baptized next week. We're having baptism the following week. I can't wait. Great, we'll fill it up. And I'm thankful for the servants who make sure that that happens here. Those who serve the Lord in that ministry of getting that ready. They were here this morning before everyone else to make sure that every drop of water was in there so that we can be obedient to the Lord and celebrating the new life that our brothers and sisters have in Christ. Thank you for your service to the Lord. We must come 
a group of devoted believers devoted to biblical truth, fellowship and communion, prayer and reverence to God. We continue today right where we left off. Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read it all again, and we're going to pick up and we're going to cover the remaining verses from 44 to 47. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Pay attention to that. I say that again to help you out. Done by the apostles. They were there confirming their apostolic authority that was handed to them specifically by Christ. They had that same authority that Christ had given them to perform those miracles because the Jews demanded a sign. They were proving that they truly were the apostles of Christ. Notice that when those miracles occurred, it was those apostles who had that express ability and power to do that. Again, that is to ward off any self-proclaimed apostles in our day who are no apostles at all. It goes on to say this, all the believers were together and had everything in common. This is where we will focus today, these verses. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Pay attention to this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We see here a great picture as we continue the study of attributes that the true church will be marked by. We have seen those that I have already mentioned. They will be a group of devoted believers. They will be a group that is devoted to biblical truth, devoted to fellowship and communion, devoted to prayer, devoted to reverence toward God. And the next thing, if you're taking notes, write this down. The next thing that we see here is selfless unity. I have to apologize to the first service because when I got the selfless unity, I parked here for a while, and I preached for a minute, because this is so important and so forgotten in the church these days. In fact, what I probably should have done is I should have paused here and just preached a message on unity in the body of Christ, what it means to be selfless and to be unified under Christ. We read this in verse 44. Verse 44 says, all the believers were together, all of them together. When we read this term, I want you to understand the depths of this term. All the believers, that means this, there was not one out here on the, on the outskirts of the church doing their own thing, trying to start their own Bible study that's not affiliated with the church, because the church, they wanted them to take this class and that class before they could be a Bible study leader. No, they were all on the same page. I want you to understand that. That is the danger of all of these parachurch organizations that pop up and all of these renegades who pop up within the church. I've done this long enough to know most of the time they are the ones who cause division in the body of Christ. And so when we look at this, it says that they were all together. No division, no disharmony, no dysfunction. I'm thankful. I get to pastor a church that for the most part, is unified and focused on Christ and His Word. But I know this. I know that the enemy who is crafty beyond anything that I can even understand is constantly planting those tares among the wheat, those weeds among the fruitful plants. And he's doing this to stir up, stir up discourse and division. And that discord will, if not taken care of, 
be a cancer to a church. This early church was unified together. Oh, just to bore you with some interesting facts, that word together in the Greek is the same word used to describe when a husband and wife come together in a sexual unity. Oh, the depths of the intimacy of that word. The believers were intimately connected to one another through Christ. He said they were all together. That's oneness. That deep unity. That sexual unity, again, of the husband and the wife. When they come together, Jesus said, A man shall leave his mother and his father and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one. What a miraculous thing when God takes people from every background, every skin color, every language, every social and economical status, and he brings them together as one in Christ. I told you, this is a glimpse of heaven. He brings us together as one in Christ. This is an answer to Jesus' prayer. How many of you believe when Jesus prayed, things happened? Why? Because he always prayed the will of the Father. In fact, he said, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And when Jesus prayed in, in John chapter 17, he said, Kirk, are we already going back to John? Yeah, you can't help but go back to John. In John chapter 17, we see this. Jesus prays what we know as the high priestly prayer. And in that prayer, he says this in verse 20 of John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. He has just prayed for his disciples who were there on the earth with him. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ prayed for me. If you're a believer here today, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ prayed for you, lest we forget that. Knowing full well everything about you, he's yet praying for you, those who would be brought in. And he prays this about us, the believers here at Keli Fellowship. Watch what he says. That all of them may be one. There's that term again. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. What is he saying here? He's saying that they should be one to such a degree as I and the Father are one. Now, when we think about the Trinity and we try to describe the Trinity, and Jesus is using this as an example here, it is beyond our human understanding and description. That three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. And yes, they are, because Scripture confirms that. And he says this, Father, just as you and I are one, let the church that is to come, those who will believe the message of the apostles, let them be one as we are one. Let them be engrafted into our oneness. Think about that for a moment. That the sovereign creator of this universe has allowed you to be engrafted into oneness with himself through the Son and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? You should be. He goes on. And he says, I want to do this, and I ask that you do this so that the world will see their oneness. He says in verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. It is in our oneness as a body that we display the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Pay attention to what he's saying here. Don't miss this because you like to read quickly. I and them... 
and you and me. Christ in us. Well, if the indwelling Holy Spirit lives in you, it is Christ in you. For it is the Spirit of Christ who lives in you. He says, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. He's saying, let their oneness display to the world my love for them. Oh, to think that the king would offer this pauper a place at his table. But isn't that what Christ has done for us? Bringing us into the family of God through his precious sacrifice on the cross where he shed his blood in my place to bring me into not a a second-class citizen of the kingdom of God, into sonship, adopted, engrafted, one as he and the Father are one. And he says this, the church should be of the same mindset so when the world sees them, they see this unified organism that is unified with not only their creator, but their redeemer and the Holy Spirit who lives in them, who is empowering them to be and to do what he has called them to be and to do as a church. We see that it is in our selfless unity we display to the lost our position. We are one with each other as a body because We have been made one with the Father through the Son. He's calling the church to selfless unity. This is a spiritual oneness with God in Christ, as I have already explained. And it's made possible by Jesus' sacrifice of atonement. You just break that word down, atonement, at one meant. You have been brought to at-one-ment with the Father through the atoning work of the Son that brings you oneness with Him. And you have been brought into His body to which He is the head, the church, and we are to function as one. The early church displays that. They display it through selfless unity, understanding what it means to be one with the Father, one through the work and the atoning sacrifice of the Son, one through the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives in those who truly are in Christ. We see that it is spiritual oneness made possible through Christ. But it's also practical oneness within the body of believers. It's not just spiritual oneness, it's practical oneness. That we would be unified on all accounts. Do you know this? We have elders who govern every aspect of this church. We make zero decisions unless we we are all in 100% agreeance. There's never been a decision made at Key Life Fellowship, and there never will be a decision made at Key Life Fellowship unless our elders, those who have been called to lead this church, agree 100% with each other. There is no two-thirds vote, or three-quarter vote, or seven-eighths vote. It is one heart, one mind, unified in oneness in Christ. Because if we are all brothers in Christ and we are all seeking the will of God and the word of God, we will all come to the same conclusion. And those who have served in leadership in this church know this. We will all come to the same conclusion through prayer and seeking God and his will as we make decisions for the body of Christ. So it is practical oneness within the body of believers. It says they had everything in common. 
You know what the common theme was for their life? The common theme was their love for Christ and for his church. Oh, do you love the church this morning? Because if you love Christ, you're going to love the church, and that is going to be the theme of your life, the church. Oh, how important is the church to you? Is it just a Sunday thing? Or is this the dearest place on earth? I can tell you this to me. This is the dearest place on earth. I love to do a lot of things. There's nothing I love to do more than to gather together with the body of Christ under the oneness that he paid for us to have in complete unity as we worship and we praise him, as we learn the truth from his word. They had a common theme. It was their love for Christ. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 13 says this, verse 34, as a reminder, a new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. He's talking about practical love for one another. He said, just as I have loved you, love one another. And watch what he goes on to say. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, the world is going to look into the church and they're going to say, man, there is something different about that group of people. They're not constantly gossiping about each other or being negative or slandering each other or backbiting each other. These people are focused and they're focused and they're all on the same page. Unity in Christ. Their motivation is Christ. Their motivation is to teach Christ, to preach Christ, to live Christ, to point others to Christ. Everything is Christ, Christ, Christ. If you find a church that Jesus is just a side note, let me help you. It's not a church. It's a civic organization that people just want to include Jesus in because they somehow, some way, even half-heartedly profess him out loud. However, a true church will be devoted to Christ. It will be Christ in the morning, Christ in the noontime, Christ in the evening, Christ after dark, Christ in every aspect of our life. It will be Christ at the ballpark, Christ at our jobs, Christ where we find ourselves, whatever we find ourselves doing. Practical oneness within the body of believers comes when we understand the union that we have in Christ. They had everything in common. And why do they have everything in common? Because they knew that their treasures didn't belong here on this earth. That they were storing up treasures in heaven. That the things that they had been blessed with on earth didn't belong to them anyways. Did you know that? These people were not living communally. I'll show you that in a second. What they were doing is they had their own possessions, but they weren't holding on to their possessions so tightly that they weren't willing to give those things away for the need of someone else. Pay attention to that, church. Many of you understand that. In fact, in just a moment, I'm going to call you to practice that. But many of you clearly understand that. You understand that as the body of Christ, we own nothing. You understand what Psalm 24 says when the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and all therein. And it's the Lord who owns everything. Many of you drove a vehicle today that you thought you owned. You don't. He does. You left a house that you thought you owned. You don't. He does. You have children that you think are yours. They're not. They're his. They're on loan to you. You better recognize those things so that you will be a good steward of the things that God has blessed you with. That practical oneness in the body of believers, it will be expressed in our sacrificial love for one another in Christ. It will be. We'll understand that nothing belongs to us, and so we'll be willing to sacrifice everything for someone else. Acts chapter 4 as Dario read in our scripture reading this morning, he told us already of this, I will read it again, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And there's that unity again, that oneness 
No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. He had possessions, but he didn't claim them to be his. But they shared everything they had. Oh, if you got a need, I have something. Here, I can help you with, need, with your need. That doesn't mean just their money. Any talent that they had, any resource that they had, any time that they had, that valuable commodity that all of us say we don't have enough of. What an insult to God for you to say you don't have enough time. He designed a day, 24 hours. He gave you exactly what you need. Don't insult him. You need to learn how to manage it. Verse 33, it says this, with great power. The apostles continued to, de- to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from their sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. What a beautiful picture. Many of you don't know this. This is how Key Life Fellowship operates. In fact, it, all, it happens on an almost daily basis. Many of you give your resources to the church. You trust the leadership of this church just as they were as they laid those things at the apostles' feet to distribute it to those who are in need. If there is a need that we know about here in Key Lime Fellowship, we are doing our best to help you meet your need. Many of you could testify to that. You could say that when I went through a difficult time, the people of Key Lime Fellowship were there, loving on us, serving us, doing for us, even taking money out of their own pocket to help us get past this difficult place in our life. Uh, Many of you will sit there and you'll say, well, they didn't help me. If we knew about it, we did. Don't don't let pride keep you from being helped. What were they doing here in the early church? They were selling their own land. I know that's foreign to American concept. And we would sell our own stuff and then use the proceeds of that to help someone else. Uh, Because we're too busy looking at our 401k and seeing what we have for the future that we're not guaranteed that we have at all. But the early church was different. What would they do? They would sell a plot of land, right? They knew that it was a need. So-and-so was going through a, a difficult time. Caesar was overtaxing them, but they had to pay their taxes or they would go to jail. What do we do as a body of believers? Let's help that brother. And one would sell his parcel of land, and you would lay it at the apostles' feet and say, here, help this one. But that was that family. Dad had been laid off from work, and he didn't know when his next job was going to begin. Though he was out looking, trying to find a job, none had turned up yet, and they were in need of food. And you know what the church would do? They they would sell their own possessions, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would distribute it to those who were in need. Church member who has gone to be with the Lord, who is dearly missed, used to come to me from time to time. And on several occasions, he would hand me thousands of dollars in an envelope. And he would put it in my hand. It was not for me. He would put it in my hand and he'd say, just like this, I figure you know who's in need more than I do. Can you make sure this gets to them? You bet I can There was no fanfare. There was no trumpets. No one, not even members of his own family, knew that he would do this. And God used him and his obedience in giving to others, just as we see in the early church, so that they did not do without. I'm thankful for those who get it. For those of you in this congregation who get it, that when you give, you're only giving back to the Lord what already belongs to the Lord, and that you trust the leadership of this church to make sure that it gets where it needs to get to those who are in need, to the orphans, to the widows, to the, to the missionaries who are serving the Lord in third world countries and who are in need of resources. 
This is the early church. Unified as one in Christ. Through spiritual oneness with God in Christ and through practical oneness being displayed in the body over and over and over again. Understanding what Romans chapter 12 tells us. Romans chapter 12 verse 10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. The true church understands that. The one another's. Honoring one another above yourself. Being devoted in love to one another. That you are not the most important to see others. Especially others who are in need. That you will drop everything that you have, everything that you have going on, so that you can give the resources that God has blessed you with to help those brothers and sisters in need. I am thankful for Key Life Fellowship. I could spend all morning, I told you the first point was going to be long. I could spend all morning telling story after story after story how I get to be a pastor of a church who understands this to a great degree. That when someone is in need, whether it's this community that has been destroyed by a tragedy, whether it's a family, whether it's an isolated person going through an isolated incident, we are there. When someone mourns, we mourn with them. But we also, when they rejoice, we rejoice with them. I don't say this to toot our horn. I say this lest we forget who we are. We must keep doing what we have always done. You hear it every week, be the light. Be the light. Let the world see that you're a part of the body of Christ where practical oneness is lived out within the body of believers where we give to one another, we serve one another. We express that in sacrificial love. Sacrificial love, that's not Christian love at all if it doesn't involve sacrifice, is it? Where would we be if Jesus just sent us a love letter and said, hey, I love you? Aren't you thankful that he displayed his love for us? That while we were sinners, Christ died for us? I'm so thankful that I didn't just get a love letter, that there was actually action and a sacrifice that was made so that I could truly experience the depths of that kind of love. And isn't this how we should love others in the church? Isn't this how we should lay our lives aside? According to Romans chapter 15, it is. It says this in verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accepting people right where they are. Look around you. There are all kinds of people here from all walks of life and all backgrounds unified in Christ, willing to do and to serve one another in that Christian love. Let's strive. Let's strive to keep that type of selfless unity in this local body. And you know how we do that? Each individual has to do their part. You have to decide that I am going to be unified with the body of Christ that God has placed me in. One heart and one mind serving the Lord together as long as it is according to the word and the will of God. We must strive to do this. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us insight into this. Verse 2, it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Are you doing that? Are you making every effort Keep unity through the Spirit, through the bond of peace, that peace that Christ has given us? Are you living that out? Uh, if you're backbiting or you're slandering, are you being negative? 
or you're causing division somehow, and most of the time those people do it behind the scenes, and you really don't even know it's done until it's already done, are you being that person? Well, I want you to understand this. If you are being that person, Christians have a duty, and leaders in churches have a duty, and here is that duty. In fact, Paul tells Titus this in, in encouraging a young pastor. He says this in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, warn a, decisive, a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. I know what many people think in, in today's modern church. Well, who do you think you are confronting me about my negative and divisive spirit? I think that I'm a nobody. But I think that God's Word holds all truth and authority, and I'm confronting you with the Word of God. And I pray that I never have to confront you, though I have in the past had to confront that divisive person. And you know what a Christian always does? A Christian always does this. I'm so sorry. You're right. I am causing division. Please forgive me. Oh, and forgiveness is not given by me. Seek the Lord for forgiveness. Confess that. And, and stop running your mouth and stop being negative. The unbeliever does this. Who do you think you are? Confronting me about what I said. You were being divisive in what you said. And I'm not defending myself against your divisiveness. What I'm doing is I am defending the church of the living God bought by the precious blood of Jesus. And I will not sit back and watch you attempt to devour it by your slander and your accusative spirit and your division. I won't stand by it. I won't let it happen. Neither will the leadership of this church. That's a biblical church. A biblical church that says, I'm going to work and to do my part in making sure that we're unified. When you say that thing, you let that thing slip out of your mouth that might cause division, you're going to reel it back in very quickly because the Spirit is going to convict you. The unbeliever is just going to do what he does. He causes division. And the Word of God says you can mark that guy down as sinful, self-condemned. He's warped. He's an unbeliever. Then you pray for his soul that he would be saved. Oh, and if need be, you remove him from the fellowship so that he doesn't cause harm or damage. You say, can you do that? Yes, Jesus says that you can. The early church preached, practiced it and preached it. And also, all throughout church history, church discipline was executed upon those who would not repent of their open immorality and sin. We have to be a group of people devoted to selfless unity. I told you, first point, it's going to be a while. But it's very important. We'll move quickly through the others. The next thing we see is this. The church will be marked by true joy. True joy. Verse 46 begins to speak of this. Every day they continue to meet together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Glad and sincere hearts. What a picture for us of true joy in the church. These people were legitimately enjoying fellowship with Christ. Enjoying sincere fellowship with Christ. First John 1 tells us this, this fellowship that we have, that we ought to be excited about, that we ought to enjoy. It says this in First John 1, verse 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this, pay attention, to make our joy complete. We ought to come to church full and overflowing with true joy. 
enjoying sincere fellowship with Christ that comes through His atoning work, expressing that in our lives, expressing that in our obedience. We ought to enjoy, right? Isn't this a new thing? To enjoy being a Christian and walking with Christ. The world likes to make Christians or attempts to make Christians feel like they're missing out on something. There's no greater joy in this world than to walk upright with God because of Jesus Christ. It's true joy. Do you know we should be marked by that true joy? That we really do enjoy our fellowship that we have with Christ. The world should take note of that. They should say there's something different. This guy's lost his mind. He is fired up about this Jesus thing. No, he's so much more than a thing to me. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my Redeemer. He is my friend. He is the one who adopted me into the family of God where I will forever be through his sacrifice that he made on a cross on my behalf. Oh, he is so much more than you could ever imagine to me. And I enjoy the fellowship that I have with him. When's the last time that you enjoyed fellowship with Christ? I hope it was today. I hope it's now. I hope that's why you're here. I know many of you it is. But I pray for those who it's not. Maybe they drug you in this morning kicking and screaming. Your wife made you come. She worked out a deal. If you'll come to me with me to church, I'll go fishing with you next weekend. My prayer is that God changes your heart and you learn to enjoy fellowship with Christ. So if you've never tasted it, you don't understand. But I encourage you to, today to taste and see, as the psalmist said, that the Lord is good. We ought to enjoy sincere fellowship with the, with the Lord. To enjoy it means to be full of joy because of it. Are you? Are you full of joy? Are you walking in that joy that comes with walking with the Lord? How about enjoying sincere fellowship with one another? Oh, we know that a church is a place where we enjoy sincere fellowship with Christ, but what about one another? We ought to enjoy fellowshipping with one another. I love Sunday mornings. Monday mornings, not so much. Right? The alarm goes off on Monday morning, and I go, it's Monday. You can ask my kids. It's always been this way. You can ask my wife. Sunday, the alarm goes off, and usually before the alarm goes off, I'm just courteous and wait for the alarm to go off so that Brandy can wake up. I'm there with my eyes open like a little kid on Christmas. It's the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day. Oh, what do you have in store today, Lord? Oh, what's going to happen when your people get together and they begin to sing praise to you? What's going to happen when we focus on you, when we preach your word, when we preach the gospel? What's going to happen? What are you going to do? How are you going to show yourself faithful again today, Lord? Oh, it's the best day of the week. Why? I get to gather with you. You're not just some of my best friends in the world. You're my brothers. You're my sisters. You're my brothers and sisters because of Christ and what he did for us at the cross. There is a, a unity and a oneness there that I can't even do a very good job explaining. I can just tell you, it is an answer to what Christ prayed. And it brings me great joy. Enjoying the fellowship with the saints. Oh, if they told me tomorrow that I had terminal cancer and I was going to die in three days. It would be worse news to me if they told me you can never go back to church and fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Oh, I remember COVID. When they attempted to make us stop worshiping for a few weeks. 
We only made it a few weeks. In fact, we really never made it. We were actually secretly worshiping. People were sneaking in the whole time. And I was like, if you don't care, I don't care. <laughs> I remember missing each and every one of you and saying, Lord, I never, ever, ever, never want to be separated from my family again. Never. We closed the doors. Never will we fail to meet. Well, it was during a time when we didn't know. We thought the whole world was going to end, right? Because that's what the narrative was. Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on you. They won't fool us again. Never. Never. If the black death hits again, we'll meet together and we'll all get the black death while we sing praise to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because there's true joy in us meeting together. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we pass from death to life because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. The church. You want proof of salvation? There it is for you. You don't know if you're truly saved? Do you want to be here all the time with the body of Christ? Do you desire fellowship with Him? Or you wake up and I don't really want to go. I don't care about none of them people anyway. I'm so thankful that's not my heart. So thankful that my heart is just as Christ laid down his life for you. Oh, please know that I would lay down my life for you and I know many of you would do the same for me. We have that bond and that bond comes from Christ. It is that selfless love of Christ that has been displayed for us on the cross and I'm thankful for that. We get to enjoy that sincere fellowship with one another. What great joy. Oh, I pray that God's people would wake up on Sunday morning and fill the streets with traffic. Wasn't it nice having a traffic jam coming into Key Life Fellowship this morning? We couldn't even get in the parking lot. Somebody told me, the parking lot's too small. Yes, it is. We got more land the Lord's blessed us with. It can be parking lot as soon as we knock those trees down, put some paving down. It's not a problem. He's already made arrangements. But isn't it good for somebody to go, man, we can't even get in the parking lot of a church. There's a lot of churches. There's no cars in the parking lot. Why? Because they don't understand this concept. The early church, what we're seeing here, there's no true joy. I know some of you love the Lord and love this fellowship so much you would fight a herd of rhinoceros to get in here. Or would it be rhinoceri? I have no idea. Multiple rhinoceroses. But you would. There's nothing going to keep you out. I remember when we had the floods, man, there were people getting in four-wheel drive vehicles, driving through water so they get church. And they came to church so they could go out and then they could help the community. Oh, I love that that's the heart of our church, be encouraged by that. But let us not forget. So many times that people become lazy in those things. Oh, we must not forget. True joy is an attribute of the true church. Moving along as we must hurry now for sure. The next thing we see in the next verse says in verse 47, the first part, it says, praising God. The church will be marked by overflowing praise for God. This is God honoring affection. You want to know if you love God? Here is a pretty good gauge. 
Are you praising him constantly? I, I didn't say, are you praising him only when things go right in your life? Are you praising him through the difficult times? Do you see his hand of faithfulness and his sovereign hand guiding you even through the difficult times? And do you praise him in the midst of every storm and trial that you face? Oh, you know that you love God when you praise him in the midst of difficulty. You know, a true church will be a church of overflowing praise for God. God honoring affection and honoring God affectionately. Giving him the praise from an overflow of the love that he has given to you. We love because why? He first loved us. And if we truly love him, we cannot contain that inside. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said we can. He said from the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. He was talking, of course, in that context about that person who was inwardly sinful and how if you were inwardly sinful, that sinful words would come out. But that also applies to the person who's been inwardly redeemed. If you were inwardly redeemed and you have seen and tasted the goodness of God, then the overflow of your heart is going to be praise and adoration and songs that honor God and God alone. There will be overflowing praise from your life. Our love for God should be displayed in our response known as praise. Endless praise. Well, the psalmist understood praise. Psalm 107, verse 8, it says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. God has loved you with unfailing love. And the psalmist says, Let us give him thanks. Let's praise him for that unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. And now watch what he does here, in case you didn't get it in verse 8. Verse 15, the psalmist says this, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. And in case you missed it the second time and how important it is that we praise him for his unfailing love, he then in verse 21 of the same 101st Psalm says this, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. I say, man, that's three times in that one Psalm. Watch Psalm 107.31. Let's make it four. He says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Look what he has done for us. How could we not praise him? If you woke up this morning and you drew a breath, he is worthy of praise for that breath. If you got in a vehicle to drive, you've been blessed with that by the hand of God. Thank him for it on your way to church. When you look around you right now and you have brothers and sisters in Christ who will pray for you at the drop of a hat, who will do for you at the drop of a hat, praise God for them. Our lives should overflow with praise for our God. Because the depths of our love for Christ will be displayed in the depths of our praise. Psalm 147, excuse me, Psalm 63, verse 3. The psalmist says this, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. Oh, we got Pentecostal there, didn't we? My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Oh, just a moment ago, we sang praise to the God Most High. Many of you didn't open your mouth. Well, I'm worried because I don't sing very well. He never says sing well. Make a joyful noise. If you understand who he is and the love that he has for you that you don't deserve, you'll be like the psalmist. 
giving him thanks for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. All the things that you have done for me that I don't deserve. I'm going to sing praise for you even if I'm off key. He doesn't care. I'm worried that I'll sound bad. You won't sound bad to him. Isn't that who you're praising anyway? One time I had a person come after church when I was leading worship and they said, I don't like that song. I said, that's okay. I wasn't singing it for you. I didn't come here to make friends. I came to make disciples. If I get friends along the way, it's a blessing. We should overflow with praise. Well, how could we not? He's been so kind and so good to us. Those of you who are in this room right now who are not consumed and in hell right now, He has been good to you beyond explanation. Beyond description. How can you not attempt to praise Him with all the vocabulary you have? You say, well, well, I have a very small vocabulary. Then use it all to His glory and praise Him. He knows the intent of your heart. You should be overflowing with praise for God. We ought to come in here on a Sunday morning and our singing should be so loud that the lost world can't even hear the freeway anymore for the praises of the saints. Well, I pray that you're listening to that this morning. I pray that we sing praise to the Lord with so much energy and so much zeal and so much passion that you can't even hear Michael sing. He's drowned it out. The instruments are drowned it out by the songs of the saints because they are so overwhelmed and overflowing with true God-honoring praise church will be marked by overflowing praise for God. It will ooze from the true church. They were praising Him continually. Isn't it true the more you learn about God, the higher your view of God becomes? I love a church who has a high view of God. We understand this. We are but peons. He is God Almighty. Don't forget that. You know when churches usually jump off track when they start thinking that there's something or somebody? When pastors get off track when they start thinking that there's something or somebody? I pray that if I ever think that I'm somebody, some of you brothers in Christ would hold me accountable any way you can so that I don't fall into that trap because I came into this world as nothing. The only thing that I have is Christ and I owe it all to Him. We have to overflow. With praise for God. Honoring God affectionately, honoring God appropriately. Appropriately. The psalmist says in Psalm 147, verse 1, he says, praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant, and watch this, and fitting to praise Him. Many of you didn't praise Him a moment ago when we had our time of praise and and worship through song. Because you didn't understand that it's fitting us to praise Him. It's right. It is what we ought to do. We ought to praise Him affectionately from the overflow of the love that we have in us because of Christ, but we ought to praise Him appropriately. Now, let me just ask you this. As good as God has been to you, how could you ever outpraise His goodness? You live to be a hundred, and you never stop talking for the rest of your life. You would never, ever praise Him enough if you were using your words to give Him glory. He is so worthy of all of our praise. 
We must have that high view of God. How do we get that? We study the Word of God, and in the Word of God, we see the attributes of God. And when we see the attributes of God, we learn more about who He is. We learn the grandness of God. We learn the grandness of God's sovereign hand. We learn the grandness of God's sovereign will. We learn the grandness of God's sovereign kingdom. We see the grandness of our God, and the more we learn about Him, the deeper our praise becomes. The psalmist said this in Psalm 119, verse one. 71. He said, may my lips overflow with praise for you teach me your decrees. When's the last time you went in a Bible study, you learned something and you left and you said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for teaching me your decrees. Not thank Kirk, not thank the instructor or the teacher who was teaching that class. The one who was leading the reeds group. We're just tools in the hands of the master. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for letting me see the truth of your word. The psalmist said, I'm thankful that. My, may my lips overflow with praise for you. Teach me your decrees. He goes on to say this. May my tongue sing of your word for all your commands are righteous. He's praising God for his commands. That so many people feel it's just God putting limitations on us. <laughs> no, it's God protecting you from you. We can go back to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You know what the Ten Commandments were? It was a standard to show us to which we cannot meet. We are in need of God's grace. It was to show us the holiness of God, but it was also to warn us of what we are capable of doing if we are left to ourselves, and that is to lie, to cheat, to steal, to covet, to commit adultery, to commit murder, to have idols before God, to use the Lord's name in vain. That's what we're capable of. The psalmist understood that, and he said, I praise you, God, because you let me know what I'm capable of. You're protecting me from me. Now, you know what the world does nowadays? Oh, Ten Commandments, I'm not going to let God put any stipulations on me. I'll live my life. You do you, I'll do me. Can I help you? You will do you all the way to hell, apart from Jesus Christ and His grace and His mercy. I don't want to do me any longer. Because Kirk was all about himself and all about his sin. He was destined for hell, condemned already, judgment and wrath upon his life. I'm thankful that Christ did not continue to let Kirk do Kirk, but what he did, he rescued me from me, and I'm thankful for that this morning. It fills me with praise, overflowing praise. Christ, what he did to rescue me, our lips should never cease to praise our glorious, omnipotent, magnificent, all-powerful, all-knowing, wonderful, magnanimous. You can think of all the adjectives. You're never going to run out. In fact, you're going to have to create more because his glory reaches beyond it explanation. But isn't our God wonderful this morning? And we join together. The true church joins together. There will be an assembly. And there will be a roar. Well, we get a glimpse into heaven in Revelation. And there is a roar going on right now. Oh, may we roar in praise in the overflow and the abundance of our heart toward God so that the whole world hears us praising the one who is worthy. I move quickly to the next and last. Lastly, the church will be marked by the last part of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The true church will be marked by trust in God's sovereignty. You go ahead and you write that down. Trust in God's sovereignty. Pay attention to what it says there. Don't read it too quickly. The Lord. Who did the adding 
to the early church? Say it with me, class. The Lord. He sovereignly added. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord. It is the Lord who sovereignly does the work of building his church. Pay attention to that. Kirk Hall did not build a church, did not start a church, did not create a church in his mind. This is all an act of a sovereign God since before the foundations of the earth put into play in my time and in your time. But it is God who sovereignly establishes his church. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I know in this church I don't have to preach long on the sovereignty of God. Most of you get it. You know that to say that God is sovereign means that he is in absolute control of everything, that nothing happens unless he causes it or allows it. Things that you know of and things that you don't know of, he is in control of. Whether that is things that are visible on this earth or the invisible things in the angelic realm, he is in sovereign and complete control over all things. Anybody who decreases him to something else misses out on the true sovereignty of God. In fact, they don't know the God of Scripture. Nothing happens unless he allows it to happen. We must trust in that. We must trust in that in the context here in the building of his church. You know, even Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus spoke to Peter, Peter made a confession and Jesus said, yes, Peter, you're right. I am the son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That came from God, Peter. Because it is God who reveals to us that we're sinners and we're in need of a Savior. Maybe some of you are sitting there right now and God is revealing to you that you are a sinner and you are in need of a Savior. He's showing you that. And he's showing you that that Savior is Christ. That happened in Peter's life. He went to Jesus. He said, he was having that conversation and Jesus said, there's, who do you say that I am? Because Peter was saying, there's some people that say that you're this and some people say that you're that. He said, well, who do you say that I am? Peter, he said, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, you're the Savior. And Jesus said, you bet, that's right. God revealed that to you, Peter. Not anyone else. The sovereign God revealed that to you. And he says this, upon that profession. He said, you're Peter? Upon your profession of Christ, I, Christ, will build my, his, church. It is Christ who is building the church. And that is the error of many, many American churches. There are pastors who are working themselves to the bone to try to grow a church. It's not our job. Our job is to proclaim the truth of the Word of God, to teach the saints, to disciple the believers, to lead people in the will and the Word of God. And then God does what only God can do. He sovereignly builds His church, just as Christ said He would. I will build my church. And not even the gates of Hades or death will prevail against her. There's nothing that can prevail against the church that Christ builds. I'm so thankful that Christ has built this church. Because the best church growth strategy is simply trust in the complete sovereignty of God and His Word to get things done. Oh, you can spend about 15 minutes with me realize that I'm not smart enough to do a whole lot. But I serve a sovereign God who is huge. And it's He that is building this church. Oh, every day I wake up and 
I have this thought run through my fleshly mind. Lord, will today be the day that all of the people at Key Life Fellowship realize what an idiot that I really am and they fire me and get a real pastor? You laugh. But I depend on him because it is he who does the work. I'm just a servant. Pray that I would be obedient to the will of my master. He's sovereign, and we must trust in that in the building of his church, not our schemes, not our marketing, not our ideas. Just trust in Christ. Not only is he sovereign, and we must trust him in his sovereignty in regard to the building of his church, we must trust him in the bringing of souls to salvation. You couldn't talk someone into being saved if you wanted to. Stop trying. Tell them the truth. That they're sinners. And the wrath of God abides upon them. They are condemned already according to John chapter 3. But the only hope that they have is Christ and to turn and to believe and to trust in Christ. And in trusting in Christ, their sins are forgiven, their sins are removed, and they are granted eternal life as they rest in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Tell them that. But you'll never save a single soul. It is he who is sovereign in bringing souls to salvation. In fact, we learn this in John chapter 6, verse 44, in case we need the reminder. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He said, true salvation is a guarantee, and it's a guarantee because the Father drew them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It's as good as done. Why? Because the sovereign God saved you. Unless you can wrestle with the sovereign God, change his mind, I guess you're as saved as saved can be forevermore. Aren't you thankful for that? You must trust in God's sovereignty in the bringing of souls to salvation. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they heard the gospel. They were glad and honored the word of the Lord. Watch this. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. There was that select group and all the people who heard the gospel preached that day and there was only a group that was appointed who believed. Why is that? Who appointed them? A sovereign God appointed them. That's who we trust in. I, I pray today that a sovereign God would appoint some of you to salvation today, that he would allow you the grace of believing and repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ and Christ alone. It is all from him. He does the saving. The only thing we can do is the sinning. And that makes us a need of his saving. Oh, trust in God's sovereignty to save the sinners. Oh, we do that here at Key Life, and I'm thankful we have a box full of names of people. Some of them we know, some of them we don't know. We pray for them on a regular basis. And in praying for them, we're probably never going to have a conversation with them. Oh, but we pray that God would. We pray that God would have a conversation with their heart. We trust in Him to save those loved ones who maybe are here on this side of the ocean or across the oceans. We trust in a sovereign God to save sinners. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. He is sovereign in bringing souls to salvation. Why? Because salvation is of the Lord. It's not of you helping Him. Right, The lying preachers who tell you that, that God is just impotently standing by waiting to see if you're going to meet him halfway, and if you meet him halfway, he'll come the other half. Why would he have to come another half? He's already come to this earth. 
incarnate, and he died on a cross to rescue those who would believe from their sin, all of it. And he came once, and he's coming back again, and all those who are in Christ will reign with him forever. He's not impotently standing by as if he's no longer sovereign. He is the God of salvation. Salvation is the Lord's. It belongs to him. You don't believe me? Take it up with Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Here's what's going on. In heaven, it says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a crowd, a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. This is in heaven. We get a glimpse in heaven, in Revelation. Watch what they're saying in heaven. Salvation belongs to our God, not to man, not to a group of people, not to our efforts or our schemes. No, salvation belongs to God. It's from God. It's His who sits on the throne in the Lamb. Psalm 68, 19, praise be to the Lord, to our God and Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Escape from death comes from the sovereign Lord. It doesn't come from you. It comes from Him. Today, if He calls you out of darkness and into light, you did nothing. It is His monergistic work. Do you know what that means? That is one party working. Salvation is monergistic. It is God saving the sinner. And I am so thankful that God monergistically saved this sinner because I never would have come to him on my own. Why? Because the Bible is true. It says that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks him. That included Kirk Hall. I did not go seeking God and find him. I was lost in my sin, dead in my transgressions, the worst of sinners. And he came to me and he lavished his love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness upon me. He did the saving. Why? He's a God who saves. You want to see the true church? It's a church who believes in God's sovereignty and saving the lost. He sends them to us. He brings them in. He saves them. We teach them. We disciple them. He sets them apart. They go and they do the same thing. And here we are bringing more in as the Lord prompts people to be obedient to his word. Why do people come to Key Life Fellowship? Well, it's not to hear their ears or have their ears tickled. People come to Key Life Fellowship because the sovereign God sends them here and brings them here and saves them here, and teaches them here, and grows them here, and matures them here, so that they can go out into the darkness and be the light as you hear week after week after week. No scheme of man, no philosophy, no no church growth model. We're just looking at the Scriptures. The early church was marked by trusting in God's sovereignty. I know I have to. It's he who saves. Just as Ephesians 2 tells us, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. Not of works. It's a gift of God. So that no man can boast. Oh, when the sinner comes here, they hear this, you can do nothing. Well, you're here today, and you're lost in your sin. You can do nothing to be saved. I know you don't get to hear that very often from many places. You can do nothing to be saved, but Christ on a cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago did everything so that you can be saved. Trust in Christ today and be saved forevermore. The church will be marked by trust in God's sovereignty.
So we have seen this in its totality, this section of this series. The series being Christ's church, the dearest place on earth. And isn't it the dearest place on earth? We've seen the basic attributes of the church. A group of devoted believers. A place devoted to biblical truth. A people devoted to that biblical truth. A people devoted to fellowship and communion with the Lord. A people devoted to prayer. A people devoted to reverence for God. And we saw today a people devoted to selfless unity, to true joy, to overflowing praise for God. A people devoted to trust in God's sovereignty. Are you one of those people? I told you in the beginning of this message, and I will close quickly. I told you this. I said that, that the whole is always made up by the individual. Are you as an individual seeing these attributes and marks displayed in your life? Are you seeing those things? I want to encourage you today, because if you're not seeing those things, if you are seeing those things, I say this to you, brother, sister, keep on keeping on. Let's not lose sight. Let's continue to go back to the Word of God, continually go back and see who the Scriptures say that we ought to be and make sure that we exemplify that in the life of this church. But perhaps you say, I'm not displaying these attributes. you got one of two options if you're not. Listen to them carefully. If you haven't heard anything I've said all morning, pay attention to this. Number one, the reason that you're not displaying these attributes is because you're an unbeliever. You're lost. You're not a part of this church. The Spirit is not living in you. The Word means nothing to you, and you're not being set apart by God as a believer. You're an unbeliever. You have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, calling out to Him to forgive you of your sin, broken over your wickedness, depending on Him and Him alone to cleanse you from your sin because He is the one who died on the cross in your place to cleanse you of those sins and to grant to you eternal life. You're not displaying these things because you're not truly a Christian. I don't care how long you've gone to a place called a church. You're not a part of the church. It's, it's an old adage, and I will repeat it again and steal it, and at the risk of sounding clichéic, say it, just because you stand in a garage does not make you a car. Have you truly been born again? Have you been prompted and drawn by the Holy Spirit to repent of all of your wickedness and all of your sin and to turn to Christ as your only hope? Have you trusted in Him as Savior and Lord? Maybe you're not displaying these attributes because you're not saved. I would say this to you today. Cry out to Jesus. He is faithful to save. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Cry out to Jesus today as he prompts you in your heart and he draws you out of darkness and into light and be saved this very day. But the second group is this. Maybe you're a believer here today. You're a believer, but you're functioning contrary to the will of God in regard to the markings and attributes of the church. I can clean it up for you, sugarcoat it for you. But let me just tell you this, what the Bible says it is, it's sin. And if you're a believer who is in sin, and maybe that sin is this, that you are not living and doing what we as Christians who belong to the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ ought to be living and doing, you're not doing those things. You are in disobedience. You're not serving the Lord. You're not devoted to Him. You're not devoted to Him in prayer. You're not serving one another with your giftedness. You're not giving up your time, talents, and monies to others who are in need. You're not trusting in a sovereign God to do what only a sovereign God can do and all the other things that we've looked at through the course of this particular message. You're in sin. You need to confess your sin. 
And know this. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But listen, don't be satisfied with that. Then the next step is this, Holy Spirit, I know you indwell me because I am a believer. And I admit that I have become apathetic and complacent in my membership and my activeness in the church. I'm just a Sunday morning guy. I'm just a Sunday morning guy. I'm just a give me an hour sermon, let me out the door so I can get on with my life kind of person. I pray today that God would change you, that he would break you and humble you and show you how much you need his church. He puts you here in this grove, in this fellowship, so that you can grow and so that you can learn, so that you can mature, so that you can be used to help others as ones once helped you. Would you be obedient to that this morning, confessing that sin? Asking God to empower you to be and to do what he's called you to be and to do as a member of his church. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Though at times it grabs us and grips us and convicts us, Lord, may it be an encouragement to us today. May it encourage the lost to come to faith and repentance in Christ, crying out to you for salvation and rescue. To the saved today, may it be motivation to keep on keeping on, maybe to do what they've never done before, seeing that today there is a biblical mandate to do what you have commanded them to do. God, we pray most of all that in this body to which Christ is the head, you would receive all glory and honor and praise for everything that goes on here. May your will be done. May your spirit move on hearts now. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness. Thank you.